we have the very light and easy topic of love and hatred today. So, with that in mind, I do want to pray um, and add to what Alan has just said. We'll continue it on. Heavenly Father, we come to your word. We, we, we acknowledge it as authoritative in our lives. And so when it speaks to us in ways that are uncomfortable for us, we know that it is we who need to change. This passage particularly speaks to our hearts, Lord, and that can be a difficult place for us to look into. But would you give us softness in our soul that we would be able to hear your words, that we may have the life and freedom that you long for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Love is a topic that novelists love to write about, singers love to sing about, movie directors write whole narratives in regards to it. It's a topic that we want to go to and want to understand. I was thinking during the week, I remember a time uh, back when I was younger where there were three songs entitled The Power of Love uh, on the charts at the same time. It's a good quiz question for you. I should find out the year and you try and name who they were. It's a topic we are fascinated with, but the Bible is too. It's fascinated because it's something about the topic of love that we need to understand because it's at the core of our being, it's at the core of reality. And so I need to understand what it is and what the opposite of it is or what the distortion of it is that sits in our world. And I, and I think it is very distorted or, or it's all over the place in our world. In one place, you would see it defined in a very close to a biblical way. Uh, movie writers often go to a storyline that ends up with a character, a hero, who ends up sacrificially dying to save people, humanity, the world, whatever it kind of is. Can anybody think of a storyline, a movie, just call out a movie that might have that sort of storyline in it? Someone who sacrificially dies at the end. James Bond, yes, good one. The most recent James Bond. There'll be no more James Bond movies. Braveheart, all right, it's good. Any others? Gladiator, all right, yep. Some of the biggest movies that we know. Star Wars, right? Anakin Skywalker, Darth Vader, before the movies got terrible, right? Lion King, that's right. What's that cartoon one with that big white thing that floats off into space? Sorry? Heroes, Hero 6 is it called, right? Um, can we, oh, that didn't come out well. I'm calling this one Walking in Goodwill, which I'll explain why. Uh, this one, all right? So this big franchise of Marvel ones that they did, multiple movies and different narratives, and it ends up with this character who was this very selfish person, this tech genius billionaire, you know, he was uh, very self-absorbed all the way through it, and yet it ends up in this redemption story of him courageously sacrificing his life to save. This is, a, this is a narrative that we hear all the time, and they return to it because it, it speaks something to us. Not just Christian people, it speaks something to humanity. So, so we hear this narrative of sacrificial love in certain places, but the narrative that talks about love in our society has a very different orientation with it. Sean McDowell talks about this, that love is now about affirming a person however they view themselves. 
Do you see how the object of the love has changed, right? So love is now about affirming a person however they view themselves. So however I, I, I want, you, you should show love kind of towards me. And maybe that's understood in the way that we've developed the opposite, the word hate, which is really now, it's always existed, right? But it's now very much part of our lexicon. The word hater took on a whole narrative in the mid-1990s. A hater is somebody who has something kind of personal against me or something, and so they're, they're just a critiquer. A hater is a person who's not got any love kind of towards me. So they're operating from a, a, an, an, a, a lens, just a biased lens, so they're just going to be critical. They're a critic, right? And, and because they're orientated in that way, I can dismiss them, can't I? If someone is a hater towards me, I don't have to listen to them. We see this with uh, things like hate speech, right? Hate speech used to be, I say speech that incites some sort of harm towards another group. That's the, the classical understanding of hate speech. It is m moving towards, it's not here in New Zealand, be careful taking this narrative kind of too far. But, but there is a drift towards this idea that hate speech is, if I say something that might be critical of a group and they are offended by it, it could be classed as hate speech because I'm hating towards somebody and I'm not able to critique. Now, it may be hateful, but you can see the way that it has moved. This, uh, this guy, Lawrence Dorfman, he's not a, a Christian guy. Uh, he wrote a book called Snark the Herald Angels Sing. It's about snarkiness and bitterness at Christmas time. So he gives just all these, all these quotes about what the holiday season is actually can be like in families and bits and pieces. But he's a bit of a social commentator, and this is what he had to say. He says, I, I also think that the faceless aspect of our daily interaction gives rise to our collective disdain for our fellow humans. With more people telecommuting, coupled with our becoming online consumers, coupled with our ridiculous fascination for the myriad of handheld devices available, one practically never needs to leave the house. And left to his own devices, man will always believe the worst of his fellow man. So we can see this, can't we? One commentator was writing a review of a, a TV series. I haven't seen it. I can't comment on the series. But, but it was uh, called How I Hate My Teenage Daughter or something rather like that. right? But it had hate in the title. And uh, he was sort of reviewing it, and he was just going. This is what happens with this narrative, right? So I set up a group of haters, but then I'm justified in hating the haters, and then I become a hater myself, right? So we see this circular thing that sits here in this mix of confusion of what love and what hate and what is it that I'm meant to have in my thought about fellow people. So that's why I've entitled this one Walking in Goodwill. I originally had it as Walking in Forgiveness. But I've entitled Walking in Goodwill as a basis for thinking about fellow human beings. And John wants to, to uh, bring out in this text a test for us, but also to demonstrate to us what that should look like.
So let's read what he has to say here in 1 John chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 6. Whoever claims to live in him, that's Jesus, must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one in which you have had, which you've had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. This truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. So a quick recap to where we're at. John is writing this letter, or as Brian described it, it reads more like a sermon. It's a series of teachings that he wants to do because he wants this group of people here, Christian brothers and sisters, he wants them to know that they are known and forgiven. He wants them to know what it is to have the assurance that they are forgiven, loved children of God. Because when you have that assurance in you, that's the freedom that Jesus is talking about. It's a freedom in you that enables you to live in the way that's described here, live as Jesus did. If we don't know that, if we're always wondering who we are and where we're at with God and with fellow people, then that is what leads to so much conflict within our own souls and conflict within our communities. So he has this passion that he wants you to know what this message is. And he wants you to know that you can know that you've believed in it and are living it. But he knows that there's things that get in our way. In fact, his last verse of this whole um, letter sermon, he says, uh, Dear children, keep yourself from idols. Keep yourself from the things that, will, that you'll put up before God that will block you in that way of really knowing what that is. So he has this passionate concept that he wants to bring across. But, but he wants to give you a series of ways, a series of tests so that you can understand. It's, it's, not, it's not some high bracket. He's saying, I want you to know this in detail so you can look at the various elements of it and you can test in that way. So he starts off in, uh, in the first few verses of chapter 1, and there's three lies that he brings out, lies that I, uh, were obviously present at the end of the first century, but I think you, when you hear them, you'll realize they're lies that are still present today. The first lie is about Jesus wasn't really real. And there was something specific in that space. They, they didn't believe. They thought flesh was evil, um, uh, the, um, the docetists, right? And so they believed that Jesus was just going around as a bit of a ghost. So people could see him, but he wasn't real in flesh and blood. And we see that today. Like Jesus is, is um, admired in all kinds of sorts of places or thought of, but, but often rejected in regards to in a number of areas. And we see that coming out in various elements with it. Jesus nice, but wasn't really real in the way that we would understand it kind of today. The second lie that sits there is that, well, me and God, we're all right. I, I'm a good person, so I'm okay. How he puts it in here is he goes, we claim that we're without sin. You ever around here and, and hear people go, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a good person. 
I don't, you, your Christian faith is nice for you, but, but you know, if there's a God that kind of exists, I'm, I'm all right. I, I haven't done anything majorly kind of wrong. I'm a good person. The third lie was this, is that um, there is no such thing as sin. <laughs> sin is just, just your concept that you have, but there's no such thing as sin. There's no such thing as morality. Right, you you just do what's what's best for you and what your your group of people and the culture that you inhabit decide. Seem to be very modern lies, don't they? These, these lies have been there forever and a day. And he comes back and goes, but I want to tell you, there's one truth, and this is the truth. Jesus is real. He walked this earth. I saw him. I touched him. Right? I know that he's real. Everything I write to you, I want to bring to you so that you may know. But I also want you to know that in him there is no darkness. He's all light. And what that's referring to, there's no sin in him. And the point that he's trying to make is, is when he comes to it, is he's saying, but there's a darkness in you. And, and if, if that darkness isn't dealt with, then one day you will stand before that God of light in whom there is no sin, there is only good, and you will feel something called shame. But he says, I want you to know that you don't have to have that darkness in you. That darkness that's in you has been dealt with by this Jesus who came and lived a sinless life and died in your place for your sin, for that darkness, he took the punishment for it so that you could be declared light, free, so that there is no fear. Perfect love says, cast out fear, John says later on there, right? There's no fear now between you and God because your sin, that darkness, has been dealt with. What it requires from you is confession of that darkness. I am a sinner. I am sorry for that. And I understand and accept what Jesus has done. And then John says, you do that, right? This is the knowledge test or that movement test of what that has done, right? It's a knowledge of the gospel and a confession of that. He says then, right, there's a heart test. It comes out in a behavior and in the way that you live. And so here he comes and he says, I want to get a little bit more specific. I want to give you an example here of what that behavior would look like. And so he says there, I'm giving you, it's a, it's a commandment that's, been, that's always been there. In chapter 3, he says this again, and he refers back to Cain and Abel. So I think the beginning here is he's saying, there's a command here that is always set here for the history of the earth, and that is that you love one another. And we all understand this. Like, you could go out to anybody on the street um, there, and do you, do you think loving one another is a good idea? They would say yes. It seems to be embedded all over the world, this idea. Loving one another is a good concept. It's always sat there, right? But he says, I, I want you to, when he says new there, he says, I, I want you to have a new understanding or a freshness to it that we see in the person of Jesus. He says there in verse 8, yet I'm writing you commandment, it's truth is seen in him. So now he's saying here, there's something about love in the way that it's defined and the way that it's acted 
that I have to look to Jesus to see and to understand. There's a worldly way of loving one another, and then there's a way that Jesus comes along and says that it's new and fresh and has something different about it. He's picking up uh, on the story, we, we talked about this before, about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. He says the same thing here, Jesus' words. A new command I give you, love one another, but he has this, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And the first point I think I want to make, um, if I haven't made any points already, but the, the, the key point I want to make from this is, see, I think of myself as a loving person. I like to think of myself in that way, and probably you do too. And so I, I have this false kind of idea that I am capable, or the, the idea of loving just sort of originates in me, and, 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 and you know, I can go on, and, and my Christianity, or Jesus comes along, and he maybe takes some sharp edges or whatever off it, but it's kind of the love that I sort of have as, a, as, a, as where it comes from. But the Bible is saying something different. It's saying that, that you, in your human nature, will have a distorted view of love. There's, there's something incorrect about it. It comes from the fall, from the rebellion of saying, I want to live my own life. I want to do things my own way. And there's a lostness that comes from that, a darkness, a blindness, however you want to describe it from Scripture. And it, it, what, it, what it is, is, the best way probably to describe it is, the, the love that, that originates in, in our humanity, in our flesh, is quite a needy love. It, it, it requires a response from the person that I am being loving towards. Do you know what I mean? You, you think about it from, um, I think this is a pretty common one these days, an approval idea, right? If, if I'm to love somebody else, I want that love returned but I'm using love in a return of some sort of affirmation kind of of me. And in many ways, it's to build me up and to give myself something that I am missing. At its very core, that's the definition of idolatry. That's the way that we love. And you'll be able to think of your relationships that you have that will be sacrificially loving. There's people that you love that don't give anything back to you. But then there's a bunch of relationships that you have where you love, where you think about it, you require that person to give something back to you. And the, the problem comes is if they don't. What if they don't affirm you? What if they don't tick like on your Facebook post? What if they don't contact you back in time of what you think they should have? What if you give the opportunity for them to give you praise and they don't do it? What happens in you? What happens to your love towards that person? It takes a little little shift, doesn't it? Right? But what happens if that's repeated? Or it happens um, in particular ways. Maybe that person sees a criticism of you, right? Of someone that you're requiring some love kind of from. What starts to happen there? What starts to hit in there? Now we're seeing the problem with the fallen love that we see in humanity. And you and I need to confess that. 
Because at the heart of John's message is we claim all these things and we don't do them. We claim, man, I am just a great loving person. But then we look at it in our actions and we're not. And the difference between someone who acts in a Christian way and someone who doesn't is one word, confession. That's what he says, 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sin. He doesn't say Christian people are sinless people. He says Christian people are those who are aware of the darkness that sits in them and wants to confess it and have Jesus make a change in your life. Right? It doesn't mean you're perfect at it, but it means it is a, it is a characteristic of you that you have this confession that sits in it. So the test here comes with this. John says, how do I know that I understand the love that God has shown? He is now defining it. He's defining it in the person of Jesus. He's defining it as sacrificial love. And he's defining it as ultimately shown in Jesus Christ sacrificing on the cross. He's going, I wonder what the test is that will show that I understand that and I live that. Well, he says this, do you ever have a hatred towards a brother or sister? Because he's saying, I'll define hatred in a minute, but he's saying if that is present in you, then you're in the darkness and blind and you need to come over into the light. It's not the only test, but he said it's a really key one. Let's have a look at it here. This is uh, Jen Wilkin, who's uh, an author and uh, speaker in the States, very, very good Bible teacher. And um, she defines love as this. Love is an intelligent, purposeful attitude of esteem or devotion, a selfless outgoing attitude that desires to do good to the one loved do you like that okay so let's look at what she calls she defines as hatred then hate is the purposeful attitude of disrespect and disregard a selfish self-centered attitude that desires to do harm to the one hated an attitude of contempt or worse, indifference. I think what she's getting at is right. When you live in a, in a community of people, a Christian community is included in that, I don't think John here is talking about the usual frustrations that you have in a community. There'll be some people who annoy you in here, right? They're just not like you. They're not as tidy as you, or as people-orientated as you, or however you want to define it. Maybe they've got the love languages not in the right space that you think they kind of should have, right? There's the usual thing that sits and simmers within communities that, that just cause frustrations and stuff with it. This is why I think you can, you can have those, but still have goodwill towards another person, Right? You can have those and still want what is best for them and be able to work kind of this through. 
hate here is talking about something more than that. Or even different from that, I would say. It's that when you, when you, when you think of that person, it's not just moved from frustra- it moves from frustration, but it moves into a, a wanting harm or God, can you harm that person, right? Save me doing it. Or you start purposely doing that harm. You, you go to a third party and start a triangle going on and chat to them about this other person. You, you, you actively participate in this one that's causing it to go on. Now, we learned this last year in James, didn't we? He said, you want to know what causes all the com- quarrels and conflicts and strife and all that stuff among you? It's because you have this, this selfish ambition and envy in your heart. You want to come over other people in ambition or you want to bring people down from a place of envy. And James had in mind looking at it from a community orientation. John is coming from a different perspective. John is saying, I want you to look at your own heart at this moment. Is this present in your heart towards somebody else? Do, do, do you lie awake at night thinking about that other person and what you, can, what you can do to sort them out? Is it shifted into this place of what the Bible talks about as hate? And the best thing that you can do, if that is the case, is to be honest about it and move into a place of confession. The worst thing you can do is stay in that space because John says it's a place of darkness and blindness. Darkness and blindness. We'll pick up, Paul talks about this, I think, too. In Second Corinthians 5, in a famous passage there, he says this, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should what? No longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. So Paul is saying this. Here's a shift that takes place. I understand Christ's love and it compels me. It compels me to move over here into a place where I no longer live for myself. I move out of that selfish orientation of love in relationships, and I move into a place where there's an other orientation, ultimately to God, for, to God, but within community, which is ultimately beneficial for me because I'm part of that community. And he says, so now I'm no longer looking at people through my fleshly human lens. I'm looking at people from the way that Christ does. And remember that it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. It wasn't because we got everything sorted out and then he died for us. It was while we were still sinners. John says it later on in his letter. He says this, we love because he what? First loved us. So the shift is this. I am now not going, God, God, can you just shape, you know, my love a little bit kind of better? I'm going, whoa, I've stepped. This isn't just an upgrade to the software. I've got a whole new program. A whole new program that sits in this space. So let's go back to our text and read that again with those thoughts in mind. 
he's, uh, I think this is the fifth time he's used this phrase, anyone who claims or anyone who says. He's particularly interested here in people who say one thing, but their behavior or their attitude doesn't match what they say. And we can be very good at Christianese, right, in our Christian communities. We love to say the right things, but he says, I want to know what's going on inside of you. And this, um, I guess, feeds off what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5. You've heard it said, don't murder, because somebody who murders will be up for judgment. He says, but I tell you, if you're angry towards a brother or sister, you're liable for judgment too. And then he says, if you say raka, which is an Aramaic word for putting somebody down, right? He says, you say that? Well, you're liable to the courts, right? And then he says, but if you say you fool, which is a condemnatory thing, you condemn someone, he says, you're in the danger of the fires of hell. So he says, there's murder over there, which he still says is wrong, right? But he says, I want to tell you, it rolls back to a place here that sits within your heart. And he says, anyone who claims to be in the light, but has this hatred, hates a brother or sister, is still over here. Do you get what he's saying? You don't, you, you haven't understood what this gospel message means. You haven't really understood properly what the love of God expressed through Jesus' sacrificial death really means. Because when you understand what it means, it shifts you into a different space. Again, I'm not saying, he's not saying you, you perfect that, but he understands the direction of what is going on. So if you see that, you step back over here and you go, I need to confess and I need to bring that right. Now there's so much more we can say in this space, but, but this topic he is going to return to over and over again in this letter. And so I hope these almost introductory remarks just get you thinking to go, I need to see where my heart is at. Jesus, would you just shine a little bit of light on those, those, those people that I, is that frustration that I have, is, actually, is that actually something that is not right in me and what is going on with it? But as we move into uh, taking the bread and the juice as a remembrance of the cost of that sacrifice, I just want to look at this passage here. Just read this passage with one single thought with it, and then we're going to go into communion. He says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes, where does it come from? From God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is what? Is love. So he doesn't, he's not just saying here God loves in action, which he does. He's saying the very core of who he is, is love. It's also all his other traits as well. It includes justice, right? Includes all the other elements that make up who God is in his, in his core being. But God is love. And he's love because he's the most unneedy being there can ever be. <laughs> he doesn't need it from that perspective. He is just so satisfied that out of that satisfaction, he, he loves the son. And the son loves 
because he's the same, loves back, and that beautiful Trinitarian love that we see described in Scripture flows in, and we hear Jesus praying, I want them to know that love and that unity that we have in that. And John picks that up because he says, I want you to know the assurance of what it is to have that forgiveness and love that Jesus offers. This is how God showed his, showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, isn't this a beautiful promise? God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, as we come to your table and we partake of the bread representing your body, your body, the flesh that lived and dwelt amongst us, but that flesh that was beaten and bruised, we take that juice that reminds us of his blood, the blood that gives life to our very, our very beings, the life that pulsated through your, your veins, Lord, but it was also the blood that was shed, that poured out from you, that through your sacrificial death, that we may have the life and the freedom today. But Lord, would you help us, each of us, to have the understanding of what that act symbolizes about how we should love. Would you help us to understand the depth of the beauty of what you did? On one level, it seems such a horrific act, and yet we know what it was to purchase, and so we see the beauty of it. Lord, would that beauty flood our souls, that we are so grateful to you, but that it makes us walk in the light of loving one another on this earth. We need you. We desperately need you. In Jesus' name, amen.